I'm Alex York. I'm the associate pastor here at Gateway, and I guess it was this summer when Ed said, hey, I want you to preach a series sometime in the next year. What kind of timing would work for you? What do you want to talk about? And because one of my passions is missions, I said, can we talk about missions? And Ed is kind of, you know, difficult to work with and prickly and very disagreeable, and he looked at me and said, sure, okay, no problem. So uh, we're going to spend this month talking about missional living. And that may be a term unfamiliar to you, but uh, when I was a kid, Mission Impossible, the original show, was on TV, and the idea was Jim Phelps and his impossible mission force. Uh, They would use disguises and all kind of high-tech equipment, and on the outside, they looked like just normal, everyday people, but secretly, they were on a mission to save the world. I thought that was really cool. If you're from a church background, then whenever you hear any word that has mission in it, you're thinking, you know, mission trip, mission offering, missionary. It's about going someplace else and doing something for Christ. And the definition of a missionary is a person sent on a religious mission, especially one sent to promote Christianity in a foreign country. And that's, you know, that's very true. Missionaries are kind of like us, but they try to communicate the truth about Jesus in spite of some cultural barriers that make it hard for other people to understand God's love. It could be economic barriers or language barriers, geographical barriers, cultural, societal barriers, that kind of thing. And both of those perspectives, the impossible mission force and the missionary, those both are accurate and give us some insight into this idea of missional living, which I would define as just everyday, normal Christ followers who leverage their opportunities and their experiences to point their friends and neighbors toward Christ. So missional living is just living your life in a way that helps the people around you see who Jesus is and what he's doing in your life. So this morning, we want to start the series, we're going to talk about the model for missional living. It probably doesn't come as any surprise that the model for missional living in the context of Christianity is Christ. And so if you're on the outside looking in, if you're not sure where you stand with God or with Jesus, you haven't made up your mind about the whole you know, Christianity stuff and what do you do with that, this could be very helpful to you because at the very heart of Christianity is a person named Jesus Christ. Christ was the title attached to him. Jesus was his first name. And he is the model of missional living. So we want to talk about the model of Christ here at the very beginning. I want you to hear how Paul, who wrote a good part of the New Testament, talks about Jesus' life in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
to the glory of God the Father. So let's think about what this passage really means. And Paul says, look, it's about humility. Rather than being caught up in selfish ambition or vain conceit or what is in your best interest, take the attitude of humility and consider other people better than you are. It's not our natural tendency. Our most instinctive reaction is to think about what's in our best interest. It's self-protection, self-preservation, self-interest. And Paul says that's not the way we're supposed to operate in the world. In fact, we ought to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. We need to follow his example, follow his lead, look at his model and imitate it. Then he begins to describe Christ Jesus. He says he was in very nature God. Now that's a Greek word, morphe, that, you know, mighty morphin power rangers, that's where we get the morphe. It's about the form or the shape, but also about not just the externals, but the inside, the essential internal characteristics and qualities. And so what Paul is saying here is that Jesus didn't cling to his majesty, his royalty, or his rights as the one and only Son of God. He was willing to take on the very form or shape of a man. He didn't consider equality with God to be something that he should hang on to out of selfish desire. He willingly opened up his hands and let go of all that he deserved. And in very nature, because he was God, he deserved that. He didn't cling to all that was his. Instead, he made himself nothing. He was willing to step away from the perfection of heaven and into the chaos and the mess that we created here on earth. He gave up a throne where he was continually worshipped. And he took on, again, the very nature, both internally and externally, the very nature of a servant. Now we're talking about the quality of his incarnation. He took on human flesh. So Paul says he's not just a human, though. He took on the role of a human servant a human who was low in society. It was quite a step down from deity just to step into humanity, but from there he took another step down to be a servant. He didn't come as a king, a wealthy guy, a chief priest, a captain of industry. There was no earthly status to his position. He came as a carpenter, someone that would be easily overlooked in his world and in ours. And Paul says being made in human likeness, conforming to the pattern of Humanity, fully. So he gave up the divine rights of knowing everything and being everywhere at once and not being bound by time and space. He took on the constraints of humanity. Most scholars believe Paul was carefully choosing his words here to push back against those who suggested that Jesus was only a man. So he's trying to argue that Jesus was fully God and he was fully human. He was conforming to the pattern of humanity, but he was still in very nature, God. And then he says, being found in appearance as a man. And the Greek word that Paul uses there is schema, which we would recognize in a word like schematic, which is a diagram or a drawing that accurately and authentically represents something else. 
So Paul is saying, if you were to look at the blueprints or the wiring diagram for Jesus' earthly form, you would see that he was fully a man. So all of this, Paul is going to great lengths to make it clear that Jesus was fully God, fully man, but he willingly laid aside his divine privilege and took on the limitations of being human. And he humbled himself with even greater humility, not just as a servant, but he became obedient to God. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, not my will, God, but yours. He had all authority in heaven and earth. He could have given the orders, but instead he chose to submit to his Father's desires and to obey him. And that obedience cost Jesus everything. It led him to death, and not just any death, the most excruciating, the most humiliating, demeaning kind of death you'd experience in Roman culture, a crucifixion. And it was a crucifixion that he did not deserve. But because of his willingness to choose humility and obedience, he laid down his life for us so that we could be forgiven. And because of that sacrifice, God has exalted Jesus to the absolute highest place. And right now, Jesus is in heaven receiving honor and glory and praise forever and ever. We give it to him on Sunday mornings, you know, when we sing songs to him. Maybe during the week when we pray and we ask for his guidance and we recognize his lordship in our life. But understand that Jesus is already fully glorified in heaven right now. He lives outside of time and space, and he is exalted to the highest place in heaven, and he has been given the name above every name. A lot of times we pray in Jesus' name, and like Ed said, there's nothing magical about that. It's kind of a shorthand for saying, hey God, we know that we have no right to come to you, except because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we approach you through that relationship that we have with Jesus. And because of him and knowing that we've been adopted into your family, we come to you and we call you Father. We call you Dad. And we pray in Jesus' name. So Jesus has been exalted to the highest place and given the name above all names because there is coming a day when God draws human history to a close and every knee will bow. Paul says every knee in heaven. So Angels and demons, all of the created angelic beings, heavenly beings that live outside of our world, they will bow before him. Paul says, everyone on earth will bow to him. Everyone. Those who have received him here as Lord and Savior and those who have rejected him, they will not be able to deny that he is who he said he was. And in fact, everyone under the earth, those who have already died, all humans throughout the history of our race, will stand before God and they will bow before Jesus and confess him as Lord. They will actually say, yep, that Jesus guy, he really is who he said. He's the Lord of everything and I guess he's the boss of me now. Here's the cool thing about this. God gives us the choice to accept here and now in this life whether we're going to bow our knee to Jesus, whether we're going to confess him as Lord, whether we're going to acknowledge that he really is the one who's in charge and that we need his help, and that he's going to be the leader and forgiver in our life. And if we do that, if we make that decision in this life, God honors that decision in the next life. But he loves us enough, and he has instilled in us a will. And he says, if you choose not to bow the knee to Christ in this life, if you choose not to confess him as Lord, I'm going to honor that decision in the next life also. And those who reject him 
will spend an eternity apart from him. Regardless of our choice, though, when God wraps up human history, there will be a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is an awesome passage that helps us understand who Jesus is, his very nature, but it also helps us understand what Christ modeled for us and what our lives are supposed to look like. Paul began this whole section in Philippians 2 by saying, if you're really a follower of Christ, then these are the things that should mark your life. If Jesus is the model, then you ought to conform your life to his pattern of living. And we're talking about things like humility. And so Christ modeled humility for us. It's a huge element in missional living, cultivating the attitude of humility. Again and again, choosing to think about what's in the best interest of other people, not just focusing on what we need or want. It could be an opportunity to serve a neighbor or making the time in the middle of your busy day to listen well to a coworker who's going through a tough time. Maybe I deliberately choose to live on less than what I make so that I have a margin available when I become aware of someone else's financial need. I think this could be a challenge for us when we get into our new building. Time and time again, churches move into buildings. And I grew up in a church with a building. I spent the first 25 years of my life in churches that had really nice buildings. But since 1985, I've never been a part of a church that actually owned a building when I was a member. There are a couple of them that have built after we left. I guess we were the ones that were holding them back. And, you know, now they're legit. I'm excited about the building that we're going to build. I really am. But I'm also wary and I'm hesitant because I think it's going to be our human nature to come in on Sunday morning to go, oh my gosh, those kids playing basketball yesterday, some parents spilled their coffee on the floor and they did not clean it up. By golly, this is God's house. And we shouldn't let them use our building anymore. And we're going to start thinking about it being our house. And this is our place and it's for us. And really, it's not. That building is no more about us than this building is. We get to use it, except our landlord over there is not going to be Loudoun County Schools. It's going to be God himself. And he wants us to get serious about using that building to serve other people. He calls us to humility, even when we're making the payments on it. Another element of Jesus' example that I want to point out to you is personal involvement. He modeled personal engagement. Jesus didn't look at humanity from a distance and say, wow, they are really screwed up. They need help. And then just, you know, send other people to carry the message to them. He could have chosen to send angels with lightsabers and laser eyes yelling, turn or burn! But he didn't. He chose to take on human form himself and to experience the full breadth of humanity, including the challenges and the struggles and the hurts and the betrayals. He could have written it in the clouds every day. God loves you. Repair. Well, I'm sorry, it's repent. It's really hard with cumulus clouds on a windy day to make out what God is saying. But he didn't do that. He did something about it in the most personal and costly way possible. Jesus stepped into time and space not only to tell us about God's love, but in an eyeball-to-eyeball, life-on-life, face-to-face way to demonstrate God's love for us. 
It's the same idea that Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 9 where he says, look, when I'm around Jews, I become like a Jew. When I'm around Greeks, I use a Greek approach. I do everything I can to find a way to connect with the people around me because I hope that by some means people will come to know Christ because of me. I'm willing to adapt if it will help them come to know Christ. And I will do whatever it takes. And people who understand missional living are willing to get personally involved in the lives of others, even if it's painful, even if it's messy. You know, sometimes we have friends or, or even family members whose lives are so chaotic, we don't want to have anything to do with them. We realize it's just like it's way less stressful if I just stay away from them. But aren't you glad that's not what Jesus did with us? He didn't look at our mess and go like, whoa, now you've got a problem. I, I'm just... Read the Old Testament. He actually enters into our mess. He gave up his holy perfection and was willing to get dirty in our lives so that we didn't miss out on his love and grace. And that's what he calls for us to do with those around us. One more component of missional living that we see in this model that Jesus lived for us is sacrifice. I mean, Jesus gave up everything in order to redeem people like us, to rescue us from our brokenness, our trying to live lives apart from him, doing things our way instead of his. And he was willing to die for us. Nobody took his life from it. He willingly offered it for us out of love. It's unlikely that any of us will be called to be martyrs, but if we choose to follow in Jesus' footsteps and line up our life with his, it's going to be along the path of sacrifice. We'll have to let go of things that we think are important and lay down our priorities for the sake of others. I would argue that Jesus is the perfect model for missional living to the degree that we can, to the best of our ability, we ought to try to follow his example. So I want to take the, the next few minutes and switch gears slightly and let's think about the mission part of missional living. What's the mission that Jesus has given to his people, his church? What's the assignment? What's the mission of Christ followers? Again, I'm going to go back to Paul, but this time out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the sake of time, I've kind of abbreviated this a little bit. He's in a passage and he says, look, we try to persuade men, men and women, because Christ's love compels us. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, thinking about him just on a human level, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then there's a colon, which means here's what I'm talking about. Here's the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God was making his appeal through us. So again, we try to persuade men, not manipulate, not argue, but we try to make a convincing case for this. And we do it because Christ's love compels us, it fuels us, it drives us to do this. From now on, we don't 
think about things just at a surface, external level. We don't look at people from a worldly view. Think about this. Paul, as a religious expert in the Jewish faith, was the one who persecuted Jesus. He was convinced this rabbi was a troublemaker, twisting the Jewish law and using it to gain a popular following. And Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was doing everything he could to stamp out Christianity because he was convinced, based on everything he had observed, that Jesus was just a man and a problem to be fixed. But then on the road to Damascus, Paul realized that Jesus was way more than just a rabbi. He was the Son of God. And as a result, Saul's name changed to Paul, and his mission in life changed as well. And so he says, look, I've learned my lesson from now on. We don't just look at a service level. We don't just look at this room and go like, wow, these are people who have it all together. They're all nicely dressed. Some of them are color-coordinated, about 45%. Look like they have a sense of style, and they're fairly well-fed, and, you know, they probably are okay. No, he looks at us, and he sees the needs of our heart. He knows our brokenness. And so we need to look at people that way. We look at somebody who's on the street and we don't see a homeless person who smells because that's not how Jesus looks at them. Jesus looks at a person of worth and value, a person who has needs that have not been met, a person in desperate need of him. So all of Paul's perspective is not just a surface-level thing. It's not looking at life from a worldly perspective. It's looking at it from a Christian perspective, from a godly perspective. He says, the reality of this, if you look at things that way, you realize that when somebody meets Christ, they're a brand-new person. They look like the same old person on the outside. But what other people may not see is that God is at work in their heart, transforming them from the inside out, changing them little by little, making them into somebody new. And even though they have screwed up in the past, even though they've left a trail of damage in their path, God is working in them, making something good, something with enormous potential to impact the world. No matter how rough their background, no matter what kind of mistakes they've made, they become a new creation. They get a fresh start with God. And all of that is possible because of God. Paul says, he reconciled us. And if you're sitting here this morning and you are a follower of Christ, you've been reconciled. Reconciliation means an exchange, to exchange one kind of thing for another. So a broken relationship is exchanged for a healed relationship with God. And so God looking at us and us being distant from him and unsure about where we stand with him, we have a reconciled relationship and we can know him as our heavenly father because of the forgiveness that Jesus offers. In Paul's writing, God is always the reconciler, and the recipients of his reconciliation are people. This is really important to Paul because he wants us to be clear, it's not anything that we do. Unlike the Greeks who thought that humans could seek the favor of the gods, or the Jews who thought they could earn God's favor through sacrifices and religious activity. In Christianity, it's God who takes the initiative. It's God who pursues us. It's God who offers grace to us instead of what we really deserve. And it changes us into his friends and his children. Paul says that God was 
reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Those of you that are in business, especially if you're in accounting, you're going to love this because Paul uses an accounting term. It's the concept of calculating very accurately the amount of a debt. Think of your credit card bill, including not just what you charged on it, but the fees, the interest, the service charges, and all the other stuff that they throw on there when you charge something. You legally owe it, but God does not post it to your account because of what Jesus did on the cross. And in fact, he takes Jesus' righteousness and perfection, and he sticks that on your account instead. That's the kind of reconciliation that Paul is talking about. And that's what God has committed us to. God has entrusted to us. It's a clear and deliberate assignment from God. It's a divinely ordained mission from God. It's not optional. It's just supposed to be who we are. We're supposed to carry and convey the message of reconciliation to a broken world. We're supposed to look around us and do everything we can to bring reconciliation between us and the people in our lives and between those people and God. Paul sums it up by saying we're Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We're his senior representatives with full authority and a clear expectation to act on behalf of our king. We're ambassadors. Think about this. Ambassadors do not get assigned to their homeland. The ambassador from America to Russia doesn't get paid to stay here in America and act like an American and soak up American culture. That's not his job. He represents his leader and the interest of his homeland in a different culture to a different people, conveying his leader's perspective and position. And really, that idea of being Christ's spokesman, his emissary, his representative, that's the first thing that I want you to zero in on from this passage. We are Christ's ambassadors. We're authorized and empowered and, in fact, commissioned or ordered by Jesus to represent his interests in the world. We're supposed to work to advance his kingdom, to push his influence and his fame into the world around us. We're supposed to make him known and let other people see his power and grace at work in our lives. We're supposed to take up Jesus' interests and priorities and translate them into a form that makes sense to people around us that are from a different culture. They don't know Christ. They may speak our language. Some of them don't. They may come from the same economic community that we come from, or they may not. They may have the same educational background, but many of them don't. And we need to put it into terms that make sense to spiritual outsiders, those who don't already have a personal connection with God. Jesus brought grace, hope, and healing, and wholeness everywhere that he went. If he's doing his work through us now, then those things ought to be a part of who we are, and we ought to pass them on to the people around us. If we're Christ's ambassadors, then diplomacy is a word that ought to come to mind. And yet, oddly enough, if you ask non-churchgoers what they think of people who do go to church, diplomacy is probably not a word they would think of. They tend to see us as judgmental and arrogant and obnoxious. And that's not what a good diplomat is. Diplomacy means asking good questions, being a good listener. 
looking for common ground, showing dignity and respect for opposing points of views, studying the culture around us, appreciating the good things about it, not calling names or pointing fingers at people who embrace the culture, even the areas that our homeland would look down upon. We know the appropriate way to represent our perspective, and we don't worry so much about our opinion as we do the opinion of our boss and trying to focus attention on our leader's perspective. So that idea of being Christ ambassadors, the only other thing I want to say this morning is that our mission is the ministry of reconciliation. There's a sense in which every Christ follower is called to ministry. Every one of us is supposed to be a minister. As a minister, our main job would be to spread the message of reconciliation, to serve the people around us, always looking out for opportunities to bring reconciliation, to restore relationship, and to make things right from God's perspective. It might be with people in our lives that are distant from us. It really doesn't make any difference whether we put the distance there because it felt safer or because they put the distance between us. But God says, I want you to be a reconciler. As much as it depends on you, I want you to seek peace with even those people who frustrate you. Jesus calls us to look for every opportunity to mend connections. We don't get to control the response of anybody when it comes to reconciliation with us or reconciliation with God. It's not our job. All we need to do is to give them the message that reconciliation is possible. Sometimes people are so damaged by their culture that we found it's much more effective to meet some of their surface-level needs before we talk to them about spiritual matters. And that's why in Circadia, Ina works to bring economic development to the village. It's why she helps the women learn skills and learn about the basis of health and clean water was a high priority for them. Sanitary bathrooms for families living there. That's a high priority. That doesn't sound very spiritual, but what it does, it paves the way to reconcile people to God. And reconciliation is about setting right things that are wrong. And so oftentimes our work may not look very spiritual. We may be serving somebody, but God uses that for the sake of reconciliation. I was really blessed to have a good example of missional living in the person of my father-in-law. Jill's dad's name was Bud. He passed away a couple of years ago. But Bud, probably more than anybody else I know, understood this concept. He was not a well-educated guy. He graduated from high school, joined the Army towards the end of World War II. He had some training in radio school. Then he went to work for Union Carbide, and he took advantage of every you know, training opportunity they had. So over the years, he actually learned microwave technology, computers, radio signal controls, and he was a pipeline supervisor for Union Carbide when I started dating Jill. He had a truck that he put 200,000 miles a year on, traveling between Corpus Christi, Texas, and New Orleans, Louisiana, and he was responsible for maintaining Carbide's pipeline there. And so he would spend five days a week away from his family. He would stop in cities, and he had kind of regular stops, where usually the larger cities where he could get parts or arrange contractors to do work on these pumping stations. But he would get to know the hotel clerks, and he'd stay at the same hotels. He would get to know the servers at the restaurants where he went, which is usually like a Denny's. And he would sit down, and he'd start to befriend other regular customers that were there. 
And he had kind of a regular routine to his life where he developed this whole community beyond where he lived. It was his community on the road. And he prayed for many of those people. He talked with them. Occasionally he prayed with them. And he tried as best he could to let them see what God was doing in his life. And he tried to point them toward Christ. Bud was active in his own church. Absolutely. He was an elder. He did just about everything you could do. Uh, When Jill was growing up, his dad was the guy that cleaned up the building at the end of the day. He was also the Sunday school superintendent. And uh, so, you know, her days began at like 7.30 in the morning because that's when dad went to church. And they ended on Sundays at the Big Wheel Diner where the church leaders went after the Sunday night service to kind of like, hey, how did today go? Isn't God great? That was the kind of guy he was. His last mission trip was to the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. He was in his late 70s. And the area they were going was so dangerous that they hired former KGB guards to be armed escorts to protect them from bandits. This guy, you know, understood missions. He understood ministry. And if he were still around and he said, hey, bud, what do you think of missional living? He'd go like, what are you talking about? He didn't know the term, but he understood the concept really well, and it was just his nature. He understood humility and personal involvement and sacrifice. He was really clear on the message of reconciliation and how to act as Christ's ambassador. And I kind of aspire to be that kind of an ambassador for Christ, and I think that's what God calls us to be. I mean, I envision that maybe God wants you to understand you're a missionary to the teenagers that live at your house. You're a parent, yes, but really you're trying to communicate the love of Christ in a way that connects with who they are and where they live. I suspect God is calling some of you to be a missionary to tech guys who only talk in computer code. But that's okay because you speak that language. And he wants to use you to represent him in that environment. It could be that God wants you to be like a chaplain to the little league team that you coach because you're the insider in that operation. You're the one who knows Christ and he wants to make himself known through you. So spend a moment and ask God, hey, how could I live missionally for you? And then I'll close this in prayer and we'll go. Jesus, thank you so much that you reconciled us to God. And all we have to do is to receive your gift of abundant grace and start following you, and we can be a new creation. Pray that you would let it sink into our hearts today, this week, this month, that you have called us to live lives on mission for you. You've given us a real clear-cut mission. You've called us to be your representatives here on earth to represent your interests, to communicate your priorities and values, and to show people the joy of living in the land where you are the king. And I pray that you'd stir our hearts and bring ideas to mind that would help us see how we could live out that assignment creatively with the people around us. We know that what you want is for them to also turn to you. And we just want you to make us useful in your mission. And we pray in your name, Jesus, and we give you all the honor and the glory. Amen.